Chapter 43 of Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume 2 by Moncure Conway. Chapter 43 In February 1874, the Reverend Brooke Herford, minister of the Chief Unitarian Church in Manchester, invited me to visit that city and preach to his people. Brooke Herford's invitation was not given in spite of, but for the sake of my rationalism. He wished me to give two sermons representing my differences from Unitarian Christians. The invitation was timed in connection with several Unitarian meetings and events in that region. A pleasant program awaited me. Brooke Herford said, I hope you are not afraid of busy family life. We swarm with children at our house and do things in very homely and plain ways, but are very glad to see our friends. This did not prepare me for the peculiar delight I found in the family. My host and hostess welcomed me as if I were a kinsman, and I made acquaintance with their children, bright and vigorous. The household was conducted on principles of mutual helpfulness. Work was a kind of play. It never surprised me that from that household should come the artistic reciter Beatrice and the witty writer Oliver, now known to the world. Early Saturday morning, Herford and I started for Etielle, where there was to be a ministerial conference. The brother of a profound author whom I knew, W. R. Gregg, had built on his estate, Norcliffe, a pretty Unitarian church. There we were to meet. On our road we stopped at Knutsford, the village Mrs. Gaskell made famous as Cranford. Brooke Herford, who edited Cranford, knew the ladies identified as characters in that delightful story, and we were told merry anecdotes. There was no suggestion of the resentments once felt at Knutsford against Mrs. Gaskell. It broke the monotony of little Knutsford to have doubles, and I believe there was a merry competition for one or two characters. We went on to the conference and to a great dinner at Norcliffe, the weather was brilliant, the ministers friendly, the conference interesting. On Sunday I gave my discourses in Manchester to large congregations. In the evening the Jubilee Singers came, a choir of colored people from Fisk University, Tennessee, who were traveling about England and singing in chapels. As their hymns were of the old Baptist and Methodist kind, their attendance at the Unitarian Church was less embarrassing than might be supposed. They had come probably because the papers had spoken of me as an anti-slavery Virginian, and the front pews near the pulpit were given to them. For these simple souls I drew several things from my Methodist heirlooms. Their singing came at the close, my anti-theological manifesto ending with hymns I had heard in childhood. I knew them by heart and joined in some from the pulpit. 
no oratorio could be half so sweet the singers shook hands with me and i hoped that my negations had turned to bread of life in their happy hearts returning to london curiosity to see the tichborne claimant drew me one morning to the courthouse already there was a large crowd waiting and i concluded that my only chance of obtaining any glimpse of the phenomenal trial was to petition lord coleridge whom i knew to secure me a place on another day coleridge was to make his first speech for the tichborne family that day and i was turning away with disappointment but caught sight of the american jurists w m everts and chief justice waite in the crowd i forced my way to them and learned that they had arrived the night before and had come on the bare chance of hearing coleridge they were about abandoning the attempt but i wrote on my card a note to lord coleridge with the names of these eminent men on their way to the arbitration at geneva and gave it to the first man whose wig secured him entrance soon after an usher came to the door and shouted my name and made a passage for our advance all three we had excellent seats and heard from lord coleridge that wonderful invective in which the only mistake was that it opened instead of closed his argument i was in such measure identified with england that it was a satisfaction to me that everts and waite should see and listen to such a noble specimen of the english barrister as coleridge dr keneally grew red under coleridge's speech but the claimant a huge mass of fat was unmoved and it occurred to me that he must have had previous experience of that kind the mental confusion of the british populace was such that a political agitation about the claimant arose among the northumberland pitmen twenty thousand unconsciously confessing their feeling that the claimant was one of their own class there is no knowing where this case might have ended had not the claimant made the mistake of bringing forward as his comrade on the ship bella a witness proved to have been during all those years a convict in england sir bartle frere told me that after this he asked his usual cabman a warm believer in the claimant what he thought now it looks as if he isn't tichborne said cabby but what ought to be done with him then i think sir they ought to give him something for his trouble on my return to america eighteen seventy five i at once started for virginia but stayed in washington over sunday i did not let anyone know of my arrival knowing well that my friend shippen minister of my old society would insist on my preaching Hardly to be recognized was the town of twenty years before in this huge Washington. I took an early walk to look at my old church, now a police court, paused before the frame house where I had lived, and went on to the new Unitarian church, a solid, handsome edifice, and entered. My old Negro pew-opener, who would have thrown his arms around me, had long been dead. I was shown by a white functionary into a pew for strangers. I listened to tunes and hymns unknown to me. 
my eyes searched through the congregation in vain to find a face i remembered shippen preached one of his usual solid sermons after which i lingered about the door without recognizing anyone or being recognized when i reflected on my ministerial joys and griefs in old washington and how completely all traces of those events were obliterated and how unknown i sat there in the new church and new washington i had a lesson in lowliness what a tiny ripple can our seeming whirlpool turn out to be in a few years strange to pass even one sunday in washington without exchanging a word with anyone at length i was at the old virginia home again of the young men in falmouth who had compelled me to leave the place because of my abolitionism in eighteen fifty four hardly one was left they were in confederate graves conway house which had been used as a hospital during the war was now occupied by some northern work people its once beautiful gardens and terraces running to weeds after ten years the footprint of war was everywhere traceable in desolations they killed the fatted calf for me so far as anyone was left without hinting that i was a returning prodigal indeed they opened their churches for my lectures paid for drove me about in their carriages and mayor little eminent ex-confederate gave a dinner in my honor but no honor equaled the delight of finding my old father to whom my religious and political heresies once gave so much trouble advanced to a sweet tolerance and even finding pleasure in reading my sacred anthology my brother peter and i rode out on a sunday to old aquia church fifteen miles away in stafford and heard a sensible sermon from our cousin rev john moncure given from a pulpit beside which his great-great-great-grandfather rev john moncure and his wife were buried the inscription on that altar tomb of our two moncure ancestors says that they founded a numerous race and on that morning i counted about fifty of my cousins most of them connected with the first and this last parson moncure the young clergyman was handsome unpretending and without cant i heard from my father some interesting incidents connected with the war when virginia seceded the governor warned all who meant to adhere to the united states to leave the state by a certain date a surprisingly large number of farmers and their families passed in procession through fredericksburg to the wharf to take the boat for baltimore they were said my father poor country folk traveling in wagons with wives and children some on foot all moving on in silence gloomy and frightened everybody crowded to see them and some near me began to jeer but i moved away from these with disgust i was touched by the sight of these humble people sacrificing their homes and solemnly following their old flag six months after the close of the war an old farmer from a remote region near the mouth of the rappahannock traveled up to fredericksburg which he had not seen for years 
and entered a dry goods shop to buy clothes for his negroes he actually had not heard that the negroes were free being quizzed by the salesman he came to my father and said they tell me down the street that the servants are all free i suppose they are poking fun at me my hands are working down there just the same as for the last twenty years i suspected that his negroes knew all about the situation the controversies about them were still raging and they probably preferred to remain with a kind master rather than rush into the uncertainties of a much complicated emancipation before the war my father possessed in addition to conway house and gardens and his two farms stocked with negroes about a hundred thousand dollars a good fortune then in little falmouth the war turned the money to ashes but before secession was thought of he had reluctantly accepted for a bad debt a quantity of cotton stored at mobile the cotton having risen to great value after secession my father ordered it to be shipped to new york and there stored and an insurance made at par value a few days after the new york storage house was burned and the cotton with it when the war was over my father supposed that his connection with the confederacy would render it useless for him to seek through the new york courts for the insurance money which had been refused but his brother-in-law chief justice moncure urged him to try the insurance company fought the case in every court but ultimately had to pay the money with costs the sum was large enough to repair his fortunes more than he had hoped i learned from leading gentlemen that during all the reconstruction time when the negroes were required to have an official representative those of fredericksburg unanimously elected my father other offices were offered him but this alone he agreed to accept without any salary he served them with justice when your father entered the board said a friend his first speech was gentlemen henceforth i know neither white men nor blacks the two races were getting on pleasantly together in eighteen seventy five in northern virginia no white man desired a return to slavery which indeed would have been ruinous to people who had more than they could do to support their families without having to clothe and feed negroes they did not need my welcome at fredericksburg was renewed at yellow springs in ohio when i went thither to visit our family negroes colonized there during the war their patriarch dunmore gwynne and his wife eliza who had been in our family before i was born were shouting methodists or baptists when these were meeting in the neighborhood dunmore had a good house five well-kept acres poultry and pigs he and his family were the colored gentry of the region they gave a banquet in my honor with old virginia luxuries on the table and there were present all the colored preachers and prominent brethren and sisters of the neighborhood in addition to our own former servants the dinner began before one o'clock and continued during the afternoon 
with a new set of guests at each successive dinner with exception of myself who had to be present with each company eliza being near as chamberlain to suggest my role and support me in it how i was to go through the grace before meat required of me was a grapple with the unknowable until i bethought me of the desire each parson present must have to contribute a blessing to the feast and dexterously passed my privilege to one after another but the trial came when the feast was over and the house prepared for a grand prayer meeting fortunately i was not in eighteen seventy five without a sufficient amount of collectivist theism to utter as my prayer one of the meditations which had taken the place of prayer at south place if my memory serves me i recited part of an old hymn from a persian litany at ormuzd which was glowing enough to elicit amens when the prayers were over all was plain sailing for i loved the old methodist hymns and could join in the singing but the awful thing was when old dunmore gwynn a practiced speaker gave an elaborate address to the large company concerning myself and the circumstances of my becoming an opponent of slavery and having to leave virginia i was dumbfounded by the size and completeness of the mythology which had in twenty-one years formed in the minds of these humble friends i was pictured standing in the centre of falmouth with the whole village raging around me and as pointing to a poor negro and crying that woolly head has in him an immortal soul he is a child of god he has the same right to freedom as any of you have and so forth for the speech was long and admirable still more graphic was dunmore's description of how the mob was cowed by my eloquence and the blacks encouraged for there were visions and prophecies and manifestations as a matter of dry fact the whole thing occurred just as related in chapter fifteen no negro was present and no speech made but was i to humiliate poor dunmore and eliza their children and grandchildren and call it all fabulous i made a rather extended address saying that dunmore had praised me higher than i deserved and telling the more meritorious story of him and the others who had amid all the troubles and dangers of war toiled until they had earned enough to find their way to washington i dwelt on what each one had done for our family while in servitude for many years services that could never be requited i did the best i could but had not the courage to attack the mythology outright the effort of so doing would have undermined the repute for good faith of our whole colony and diffused more untruth than it dispersed i gave a lecture at yellow springs the students of antioch college being curious to hear the lecture on demonology that was selected and the wall behind the desk duly covered with illustrative pictures of demons dragons and devils front seats in the gallery were reserved for our negroes who all came in finest raiment and occupied the position that in europe would have been accorded to royalty 
it was by no means a lecture suited to them but i had tried to throw in as many good stories as i could for their sake however the scientific study had to be made and when i got into the depth of my subject an incident occurred while with my pointer i was describing the evolution of demons i came at length to a figure drawn for me in london from a gnostic gem this i said is the only known representation of satan give it to him honey shouted old eliza from the gallery give it to the old devil hot and heavy of course there was prolonged laughter in the assembly to most of whom the gaunt figure of our prophetess was well known eliza had made the hit of the evening so far as the fun was concerned but alas i was unable to give it hot and heavy to my gnostic satan he was my pet figure being of severe beauty the satan of job not yet fallen from a legal prosecutor to a punisher as i proceeded ejaculations of others came from the gallery right too ain't it good true's gospel on the following day when i was talking to my colored friends again i was pleased to find that the heresies pervading my lecture had passed entirely over their heads and that their love and loyalty had discovered an amount of good old methodism in it which i had not suspected when they talked about the old serpent and the devil and his way of going about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour and anon changing himself to an angel of light i felt a warm sympathy stirring my heart my optimism had been for some time weakening the unitarian doctrine that all evil is good in disguise must have been for some time receding and i listened with philosophic attentiveness to the experiences of trial and temptation told by these simple friends in which i heard again the word of jesus concerning the tares an enemy hath done this the most intelligent of our negroes was james parker a handsome mulatto who had been my father's valet in those days james had held the noisy piety of his race in quiet contempt but he had been converted although he did not lead in prayer and could not sing i had learned in fredericksburg that in eighteen sixty two when james was left within the lines of the union army he penetrated into the confederate lines at risk of reenslavement to find my father and continue in his service but was told he must return to freedom he now told me he had never been happy since parting from my father and would gladly return to his service it was touching to me to observe the eagerness of all of the negroes to hear about my parents and their family of whom they spoke with affection and emotion in new york i was given a dinner by the lotus club whitelaw reed presiding and a breakfast was given to lord houghton and myself in the century club the venerable poet bryant presiding at this breakfast dr bellows made a felicitous speech full of literary anecdotes he delighted lord houghton by relating that when thackeray was there he whispered to him at breakfast 
you know mr thackeray that your colonel newcomb is borrowed from whom asked thackeray oh he is plainly a mixture of don quixote and sir roger de coverley good god exclaimed thackeray how did you find me out at boston and cambridge i was welcomed by old friends and also at concord but alas aphasia had sadly invaded the brain of emerson and he was painfully conscious of it i felt in all this region that there was some desolation more or less related to that i had seen in virginia in conversation with alexander little a brilliant but intransigent editor in fredericksburg he said this old town was captured but there is the receipt for it pointing to the national cemetery but ah what a price it was there lay the youths who would have continued the traditions of the literary age of new england among the few of the younger generation who had risen to eminence was professor john fiske i saw a good deal of him fiske was trying hard to recover his earlier beliefs in a personal deity and personal immortality and i was trying to do the same i told him that my difficulties arose from the evils and agonies of the world such as the horrors of the war which had ruined a large part of the south and so afflicted france incidentally he told me that he had recently had the most remarkable optical delusion of his life he had seen in his library the devil the regular medieval devil with hoof and horns hideous face and fiery eyes i told him that it was surely the coinage of his pure reason he could never have a benevolent and lovable deity until he had some means of relieving that deity of all responsibility for the evil in nature fisk's spectral devil identical in form to that at which luther hurled his inkstand was utilized by me in a sermon before the parker memorial society i preferred luther hurling his inkstand at the devil to the academic optimist using his ink to prove that evil is good but i did not yet trace the confusion of good and evil to its root in creationism he who creates a thing out of nothing creates all that comes out of that thing both the good and evil always anxious to believe as much as i could i found refuge for a time in utterly renouncing the possibility of gaining any religious idea from nature and trusting solely to the ideal in mind and heart my lecture on demons and devils was well received at portland maine governor washburn my host suggested to the leading methodist preacher that he should come and hear what i had to say on the devil the old preacher said if as they say the lecturer left the methodist ministry no doubt he is well acquainted with his subject but i have no desire for any acquaintance in that direction a lecturer in the western states thirty years ago was well paid a hundred dollars or more at columbus i got three hundred dollars for a lecture before a society there on london men of science 
but the lecturer had to give good measure. On the morning after his lecture, he had to go through the big school and address the children in several rooms. At the first town where I lectured in Ohio, some scientific gentleman gave me a small, rude carving of a woman's head found near the place. In going through the public school next day, I showed it to the children and spoke of the importance of antiquities. It produced such a good effect that I carried the little thing in my pocket. At the next town I spoke to the children of the importance of observation. All through their fields were Indian arrows, and perhaps more interesting relics, such as this, producing the Indian head. At another time, my pocket squaw illustrated the tendency to art implanted in the human bosom. The image did me good service. I became attached to it, but, alas, lost it and had to get up a new school piece. But, ah, what delightful people I met in that western tour! Studious, educated, hospitable, they gave me an impression that a new and nobler America was arising in the West, and I returned to England with a burden of happy prophecies. End of chapter 43 Recording by Roger Moline